Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today my guest is Elizabeth Rowe. Elizabeth is the principal flute of the Boston Symphony. She is an advocate, mentor, and coach. In this episode, Elizabeth and I discuss generating the important conversations that need to happen in our industry, her life and career, finding fulfillment, mentoring young professionals, and gender equity. So please make sure you are liking and sharing this episode. Please make sure you're also subscribed to our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast shows. And please also make sure that you're following us on all of our social media accounts as well and you're checking out our website. And if you are interested in checking out Elizabeth and her work and her website, I have tagged her website with the description of this episode. So please make sure you check that out as well. And I will see you all next Monday. Thank you. Well, it's a, a treat to be here with you. And um, I am Elizabeth Rowe, and I am the principal flutist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I am also a leadership and life coach who supports creative people of all types as they work to achieve their personal and professional goals. I am a teacher, a social justice advocate, and occasionally, as you know, a public speaker. And I guess, yeah, I've spent a lot of my career just helping open up dialogue and conversation around complex subjects, especially within our field. And um, I've given a TEDx talk about loneliness and vulnerability and creating community. And um, I recently formed an online group to support early professional musicians. And um, yeah, so I guess to some sum it all up, my overarching mission in all of this is just to kind of illuminate and celebrate like the many dimensions of who we are as creative people, especially. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so happy you're here. I'm really excited to dive into some of your life experiences and what has kind of spurred your movement towards these social justice issues and that sort of thing. So I'm really excited to dive right in, but I usually just start with kind of a baseline of, you know, your background. So we all have an idea of, you know, where you're coming from with all of this. So why flute? What got you started in flute in the first place? Great question. So my parents are not uh, professional musicians, but they are music lovers. So there was classical music on in the house when I was growing up. I'm the oldest of three girls. And um, my parents just would ask me what sounds I liked. And I always was drawn to the sound of the flute. And the, the family story is that when I was like five, I said, I want to play the flute. I want to have flute lessons. And they said, if you still want to do this when you're seven, we can talk. And I hung on. And at seven, I was determined. And so I started flute lessons when I was, when I was seven. So it was really the sound of the instrument that, that drew me from the beginning. Yeah, that's awesome. I, my parents aren't super uh, heavy music people. Like I'm the only person that does music professionally in my family, but they were always playing like funk music and nice. <laughs> uh, 70s, 80s rock. And like, 
I think uh, one of the groups that inspired me to play the trumpet was Earth, Wind and Fire, because I always thought their horn line sounded so cool. And I was like, hey, I want to do that. That sounds awesome. So I can totally relate to you there. Not so much (laughs) classical music, but that was more of my grandpa's thing. He was always playing classical music everywhere. But my parents were, you know, they were of that generation. So that's what I was listening to growing up as well. So you started playing flute at seven. What were your school experiences like in like middle school and high school and those things growing up, you know, kind of figuring out, hey, maybe I want to do music professionally and those sorts of things? Yeah, I was really lucky that um, I, right before sixth grade, I guess I moved to Eugene, Oregon, and there's a really wonderful community youth orchestra system there. And so I, starting in sixth grade, was already playing in what they called the junior orchestra at the time. And then I graduated up to the youth symphony and just genuinely loved that music. I loved the whole experience and um, probably early on in high school started to contemplate pursuing this as a career and had started having some lessons with the principal flutist of the Oregon symphony. And she was really pivotal in helping me understand what that career might look like, but also the obstacles that stood in the way potentially and to give me a realistic idea of what pursuing something like that might require. Um, She at some point sat me down and said, you can be a professional orchestral flutist if you want to, but you need to also be prepared to wait tables until you're 30 to support yourself. And I was like 16. So I was like, sure, no problem. Because I don't think I fully understood what that would be like at the time. Um, But I had a, I had a strong understanding that it was a a real commitment to embark on this kind of a career, but I was determined to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I always love hearing stories about, you know, when people were in high school and they're figuring their lives out and they always have like a mentor that's helping them in the right direction and that sort of thing. And, and I, I had a similar situation, my private teacher in high school, because I was, you know, very gung ho on being an orchestral musician at first. And then I realized my passion is more education, but I remember talking to him about it and he was always like, you know, it's kind of like being a professional baseball player. He's like, there's not many of them that make really good money doing it. So you got to be able, willing to work your butt off. Right. And, and anybody in a music career, frankly, in any sort of area, there's like, there's always the group that has it. And then, you know, like you said, like waiting tables till you're 30, right. You got to be prepared to potentially have that lifestyle. So yeah, it's very, very interesting, the perspectives that others have that are successful in the field, you know, when they mentor young folks and being like, yeah, you got to be ready to put in the work for sure. So um, can you talk a little bit about your collegiate experiences when you know you obviously chose to pursue music professionally? So can you talk a little bit about those experiences where they mainly positive, negative, um, and what were your relationships were like with, you know, faculty and your peers and that sort of thing? Yeah, I um, I had a, a great experience in my undergrad. It was a little bit different from many folks um, because, well, I should back up and say, I was always a very serious academic student um, through high school as well. And so I actually um, received a full ride academic scholarship to go to USC in Los Angeles. Um, they called it the trustee scholarship at the time. and. I got accepted into a number of music schools, but as a flutist, especially, there's not a lot of scholarship money for for flute players. There's not a lot of scholarship money for musicians in general. And especially if 
for flutists. And so um, the academic scholarship at USC really was the, was the deciding factor for me. And luckily that also happened to be the school where the best possible flute teacher in the world for me to study with was teaching. And at that time, I knew that the teacher there was wonderful and I thought he was incredible. His name is Jimmy Walker, but I had no idea what a gift it was going to be for me to, to study with him. And part of my experience in my undergrad that was a little bit different was that although I was in a music school, I was in a music school in a large university in a large city that was largely a commuting city. So most of the other students at USC commuted into school. So there was not a strong campus culture. Um, and there, it, it wasn't the kind of nurturing undergrad kind of environment where everybody's in the dorms together and there's a lot of campus life. So I developed a lot of independence really early. And by the end of my undergrad, I was freelancing. I was teaching. I had a teaching studio. I was subbing with orchestras. I was gigging. I was paying my own rent. Um, I was living a pretty independent adult life, even at the age of you know 20 and 21, kind of as a product of the school that I went to and the environment that I was in. Sometimes that felt a little bit lonely and a little grown up, frankly, to, you know, to, to be doing all that already at that stage. But I developed an enormous skill set already at that point to, to be able to support myself in that way. So I'm incredibly grateful both for that life experience and also for the, the education that I received from my flute teacher as well. So overall, it was an incredibly positive experience for me. My next question was, you know, we, we talk about on the show a lot, um, the idea of instrument bias and what that kind of plays in, especially in, you know, instruments where if I have uh, a female identifying guest on my show, you know, when we are talking about instruments like the trumpet or the tuba or things like that, they're very male dominated, nominated, right? And that causes a lot of issues when it comes to, you know, university positions, symphony orchestras, even in education, what have you, there's like this perception that society creates for certain instruments, depending on these biases. And so you are of, oh, you're a woman, you're a female identifying person who plays the flutes, you are of the majority. However, there's still that lack of representation, even in our upper woodwinds, right, at, in the symphony orchestra level. So can you talk a little bit about Obviously, you know, growing up and playing in school, you were probably surrounded by a bunch of people that looked like you. When did that transition sort of happen for you where you went from being, you know, I'm part of the crew, so many people look like me to not so much? Yeah, it's a great question because it is so interesting playing an instrument that is so stereotypically like a quote unquote girl's instrument and then being here in my position where the principal flutist of the New York Phil, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Chicago Symphony, the Cleveland Orchestra, the LA Phil, San Francisco are all men. And I'm the only woman of, of that group, female principal flutist, even though I play probably one of the most stereotypically female instruments, if you're gonna phrase it in such a way. So I, I think really, I didn't bump up against this until I really reached my current position in the Boston Symphony. Um, and at this very, very high level within the industry where I think some of the traditions and the sort of institutional 
the power of the institution is so strong in these big established organizations like these top five orchestras. So this is really the first time. So that was, you know, I was already 29 or, or almost 30 when I got, I, I think I was 29 when I won the audition for, for the BSO and 30 when I actually started the job. So I hadn't really confronted that, although I had certainly noticed that, and, you know, we don't really understand all the, the reasons why, um, if you look at the total number of flute players, it's dominated by by female identifying musicians. But then when you look at the the high, quote unquote, high achievers, or however you want to define that, there are a number of really phenomenal male flutists, tre- tremendous ones. And some people would argue that they had to actually stick it out through all of the bias that they that they faced as being playing an instrument that was considered a girly instrument, you know, along the way. And so that they were the most dedicated. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, conjecture about, you know, why the, the demographics shift as we get sort of higher up in the, in the level of, of visibility within the, within the industry. So I think to answer your question, it was really, it was really when I got into the BSO that it became more apparent. Also when I got to the BSO was when I realized that aside from the, principal harpist in the orchestra. I was the only woman principal player in the whole orchestra. Yeah. And I mean, and um, I'm a person that, you know, growing up, I had, you know, the privilege of attending a lot of symphony orchestra concerts and I'm from the Buffalo, New York area. So I got to see conductors like Joanne Valletta absolutely killing it. And that was, I never, you know, thought of conductors as being only men because I saw her right so I never kind of questioned that and so you know when I went to pursue my music education and I was conducting those things I never really had that questioning of you know am I represented because I had someone like that but as far as trumpet goes I didn't have that um the Mm -hmm. entire Buffalo Philharmonic section is all men um pretty much their whole brass section, I'm pretty sure is all men as well. And then I went to my undergrad in Cleveland, Ohio, and men, (laughs) the entire thing. And there's so many issues happened with the Cleveland Orchestra while I was in college as well. But like, I mean, I I studied with Jack Setti, who's the second trumpet of Cleveland Orchestra and big dude, six, four, six, five, something like that. Well, like over a foot taller than me, just monstrosity of a man. And then there's just me and my little body and like, hey, what's up? And things like that. It's just like this, this perception that you have growing up and what you're seeing as a student really does have an effect on, you know, that representation piece of do I fit in here? I, I don't think for me, it was ever a question of would I not be successful? I think it was a, do I fit in? Like I felt very othered. I felt like an only often. And so I think it's, that's something that I've always experienced. I don't think there was ever a moment where I was like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of people who look like me that are in my section. I don't think I've ever experienced that. I mean, in my undergrad, the entire, I was the only woman in the entire back row for a pretty significant amount of my college experience. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's weird. It's something that you get used to and you never really like question it until you're in college and you're like, Hey, yeah, yeah. You know what? Why is that? You never really question that in K-12 education. You're just kind of like, yep, I play a dude instrument. This is fine. (laughs) It's what I do. You know, it's very strange, very strange. I think that that idea that you bring up about being able to envision yourself in a particular role or see yourself 
I think that's so important because also, you know, we are accustomed when you talk about Joanne Folletta and I actually, she was one of the conductors that I played for in my early freelance days in Los I Angeles when her. I was a student. Awesome. Yep. But when we think about leadership and what does leadership look like and what does body language look like from a conductor in different body types and what are we accustomed to and what style of leadership are we accustomed to within a section in an orchestra and to not have models or examples that resonate with us in a kind of natural way can make it difficult because we're kind of inventing it as we go along. And I think that that's part of when you say that you felt very othered a lot, I think that's part of the isolation of that too, is that you're having to kind of make your own choices and forge your own path the whole time because you can't even follow along a, a path that has been at least traversed by someone else. You're just, you know, pushing aside all those branches and, you know, finding your own, your own path through the, through the terrain. Yeah. And my, my private teacher in high school, he, he tried to help me with that whenever I was working on a solo for all state or all national or whatever, he would provide me with recordings that were specifically by women who played trumpet. So I was at least seeing that and saying, oh yeah, that person looks like me. That's pretty cool. But I, I never studied with anyone that was a, a woman trumpet player. I don't even like that term, female trumpet player, female conductor. I don't like it. It bugs me because we don't say that about men. But anyway, <laughs> I, I never um, even studied with a woman until I had um, my teacher in my undergrad was out on tour with Cleveland Orchestra and he was having people fill in, you know, every week a guest person. And I finally had someone who was my size who I identified with. And it was just so refreshing because the same issues that I was having on my instrument because of my physical size she absolutely related to and she was able to help me and say hey you know what this is how I get over this problem that a man twice my size wouldn't have things like air capacity and metering your air and things like that just because she's my size we were able to solve those problems together and it was just so refreshing to have that there are certain things that you just relate with more absolutely and I also think that that diversity of experience promotes a kind of creativity that is lacking if we just follow the same kind of traditional path that's already been followed. So when you talk about air control, breath control, you know, if there's a certain measurement that determines how a phrase is supposed to be shaped or what, how far we're supposed to go between breathing. And that has been predicated on a certain, you know, size of body or a certain physicality, then we've sort of missed the opportunity to approach the music from a different vantage point and a potentially better, newer, different, just other way of doing things that could be equally convincing, if not more so. So I think also sometimes we, we sort of lose this opportunity to have fresh eyes on all these musical traditions that, that we kind of accept. Flute players have this, our big thing is the, the opening solo in the WC afternoon, prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. Yeah. And the whole thing is, can you do it one breath or can you not? And, you know, it's just, it, it's such, it's, it's such a, a minor point in the, in the scheme of music and art and artistry and so on. But it's like this, it's almost like this, this very purely kind of physical measurement that seems to me is so irrelevant in so many ways, but has been used as a benchmark for flutists for, for years and years and years. And that's finally changing, but um, I think largely because of exactly these, the, the, what you're talking about too, is having different kinds of bodies and different kinds of 
people who are making art together. Yeah, and I mean, that that point you made about the getting through it in one breath, it's like that competitive sort of core that we have all been trained to have inside us from a young age. And that's uh, one of the issues that I just have with classical music training in general is it's all competition all the time and it's always preparing you for the next thing and I think it's to a point where like when you get the thing you're still not satisfied you still want to push yourself to be better and so there's that and then also there's this language piece when we are not only if we're teaching privately or if we're teaching a large group of kids and stuff the way we use language when it comes to teaching kids an instrument especially I, I don't know if you found this on flute but in brass world everything needs to be aggressive everything needs to be forceful it's all these masculine words we use like the amount of times I've been told in my life to play like I have a pair and I'm like I don't <laughs> it's been hysterical because I'm like that that does not apply to me and things like that it's just wow. the language we use does not help all of the bodies we have in the room. It's not serving everyone to make it so that we understand what the heck's going on when we're learning a piece of music. Absolutely, and it also questions what, what do we value in music? And if it's really this kind of athleticism and this ability to jump higher or play longer or louder or faster, I mean, that has some, all of those are skills that can be used in service of expression and creativity and, and all of that, but they are not the end goal in and of themselves. They are just one of the many tools that we have to express ourselves. And so if, if what we're really doing is prioritizing those kinds of measurements over everything else, I think we've missed an enormous amount of nuance and context and color that's available to us as musicians. Yeah. And when I walk into, I started my, my job last year, my teaching job, and I walked in and there were 13 male trumpet players in my high school band. And it was always about going louder and faster and, and everything like that. And I was always like, Hey, you know, for as much as you play loud, also play soft on trumpet. What? <laughs> Not only that, it's harder. I mean, or it's, it's as hard. I mean, it's all hard. And it's just a question of, we all grow so much when we explore those areas that don't come as naturally to us. And so if your natural inclination is louder, faster, higher, then the encouragement would be to explore the other. Yeah. And that's, I think that we all benefit from that. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to transition a little bit to your lawsuit that happened. The big thing, Elizabeth Rowe made the headlines. I would love to share with you as much as I can. I can't share with you everything um, about this because yeah, for, for obvious reasons, but I can talk generally about how this information is available to all of us. And so, um, and one of the things that I am really passionate about in our industry is I believe that it's, you know, they say sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? And so the more knowledge and information that all of us can have, the better. So I'm a huge advocate for people sharing their, disclosing their own salaries, talking and sharing information with colleagues, um, being open about this because we all benefit from, from knowledge. So there are, you know, American orchestras are nonprofit organizations. The tax requirements of nonprofit organizations are that they publish the 
annual salaries of their top earners. And it varies a little bit depending on whether that includes management or musicians or how that goes. So there's a fair amount of data that's available in the public domain to start getting educated about where things stand and how things go. So between a, a combination of that and talking with one's colleagues, it's possible to get a pretty strong idea of where, where you might stand. Um, it's not possible for everyone because that's only available for people who are already kind of at the high earning level within an organization. So there are some limits to what is available to all of us through the, those mechanisms. Although by talking with each other, it could theoretically be all out in the open. Um, so one of the things that I am hopeful will start to shift within our industry. And I think this is an issue that extends beyond our industry, but it's especially prevalent in the music world is this sort of secrecy around salary. Yeah. And I think it can happen from two different directions. One can be shame around disclosing what you're being paid because if you're being paid less than your colleagues, there can be that question of, well, does this actually mean that I am valued less than my colleagues, that I'm worth less than my colleagues? And, or on the other side, there can be this, if you are a highly compensated artist, there can be this, almost this sense of wanting to preserve that status for yourself and not share that with, with yeah. your colleagues by disclosing that information. So, so it's a difficult subject to tackle until we all start releasing ourselves from those narratives and understanding that, that we can all benefit and grow from increased transparency around all of that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's, it's definitely an issue with organizations like that. As a public school teacher in New York state, you can literally go on a website and type my name and you can see my salary, how little money I make. <laughs> well, and interestingly, there have been studies that show that when people actually know what their salary is relative to their colleagues, very often people are being compensated fairly mm -hmm. and they just didn't know it. So yeah. often organizations are very resistant to disclosing this information and inadvertently create a culture of mistrust and the presumption that there is something fishy going on, even when sometimes there, there actually isn't. So transparency is valuable in both directions. Also, it helps assuming the employer has done their due diligence and, and actually is playing people fairly, then it can actually help the employees see that and understand that and feel better about things. So there's yeah. really, there's nothing to be lost by transparency, but that's just not the way that most major orchestras function yet still today. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so this whole situation happened with you personally, and it is considered to be the first of its kind in this, the, in, our, in our industry, but the Washington post also exposed the significant uh, gender pay gap that's happening within the orchestral world. And I actually interviewed Anne Majette, on one of my earlier episodes, and she was one of the headstrong uh, reporters and um, critics for the Washington Post during this time. So she exposed all of this and she was huge behind the Me Too movement and everything that was happening in the classical music world. Um, so she's, she's one of those people that really put a, a face on what was happening and really exposed that. And she even said that 
she wasn't surprised, but the fact that it gained so much traction so quickly really surprised her as well. So you really helped spur a movement, I think, in the right direction. Well, I'm that's my my greatest hope with all of this is that it just again shines a light on on and really helps to improve our whole industry. And her reporting um, has been was so important because we were confronting all of these issues simultaneously: the pay gap, the harassment issues. The there was so much that that was going on within our industry and and continues to, um, and also within teaching institutions, you know, conservatories. There's been just a tremendous amount of, you know, secrecy and failure to take a hard look at ourselves and um, the, the, you know, we've tended to kind of sweep these little dirty little secrets under the rug for a long, long time. And it's thanks to really to, to great reporting in many cases and some courageous people also who shared their stories um, that is really finally prompting our industry to, start to take some steps, start to take some steps in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think the issue, at least mainly from the collegiate standpoint, is that there is this sort of weird elitist hierarchy that happens with students in a studio and their teacher, where certain individuals can take advantage of their stature and their situation. And it's very unfortunate But I also think that with things like this reporting that we're talking about, but also social media in this sense has been really helpful in this situation because I'm part of a women's trans and non-binary brass musicians group on Facebook. And we, and, and some of the posts that are on there are exposing people that have been taking advantage of their women, uh, students for so long. And it's so crazy because, you know, one person will say this happened to me and then 30 other people, boo, 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 right? And we're talking decades back of the same person. And so this stuff keeps just getting swept under the rug over and over and over again. But it's not only a way for people to be supportive of each other and say, hey, you know, like I went through this too, like, please let me know how I can help. But it's also a way of exposing people as well. And then you find out, oh, there's like 20 other people that this happened to, like what's going on here? And in that way, it's really opening that line for communication for people to say that so they don't feel as isolated, you know? Right, well, and that's, I mean, that's the the whole Me Too movement before it became, you know, a sort of a global movement was really was really designed to allow women who were, domestic violence um, survivors to connect with each other and to that whole idea of me too is that little flash of empathy that you gain when you share your story and someone else can say, oh, you know, my story is, is different from yours, but yes, me too. I've also experienced that. And that that little bit of overlap, that me too um connection that 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 point of empathy is so incredibly powerful because regardless of what any one person's individual story is ranging from you know minor um traumas up to you know really you know ongoing you know very 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 challenging circumstances we all have a point where or many of us i should say are able to find that point of connection with each other when we start talking and when we start sharing our stories. And then that's where that, that even, even stories that are 
you know, quite disparate, often there is that little bit of overlap where we can say, yes, me too. And I hear you. I understand. And I think that that's incredibly powerful because when, especially if you're going through something that's quite difficult and traumatizing and you feel like you're literally and truly alone, that, that, that loneliness is such a debilitating and exhausting state to be in and to have that relieved even a little bit by a community of people who understand is so powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So from all of this, um, the way I first kind of, well, not really met you, but like observed you (laughs) was you came and you are a keynote speaker at the Gender Equity Music Conference, which was at Eastman. And it was the first collegiate gender equity and music conference, which I was like, hmm, 2020, a little late for that, but okay, cool. We're here now. We're going to go with it. Right. That's Um, right. Yeah. And it was so funny. So while, while you were talking, I actually found, I took notes on my, on my phone of some of the things, like some of the quotes that you had said in your keynote address, because it resonated with me so much. And I do want to tell you that you were one of the reasons your keynote address was one of the reasons why I started this podcast. Um, It was kind of where the idea sort of spurred because you were talking about sharing your stories as being a way to claim your space. And I used that and I kind of expanded upon it, but like as saying, like, it's not only a way to share a space, but it's a way for us to advocate and to amplify voices of underrepresented peoples in music. And that's why if you look at the description of my podcast, it kind of expands upon that. And so I, I wrote down a bunch of things when you were, when you were speaking and, and the one quote that resonated me uh, with me the most from your keynote address was the personal is political. I don't know if you remember saying that, but you like, you said it and then you paused for so long and I could just hear like the wheels just turning in everybody's brains and it was just silent. And I was like, whoa. It's so true, right? The who we are and how we identify ourselves and how we present ourselves is political. Our personal beliefs, our biases are political. And a lot of organizations and institutions try to separate that personal and political, right? Um, but we have to understand that just being who we are is political and it's saying something and it's making a statement. That's right. And that was, that was Gloria Steinem who really introduced us to that. And that, that is, that's absolutely true. And our own individual choices and the way we lead our lives and the way we show up in our workspaces and workplaces and, and in our relationships and all of that, that every single step that we, every single choice that we make and every way in which we occupy space is a political act. Yeah. Yeah, so, so true. And so you were talking a little bit when you are introducing yourself at at the beginning of our time about this advocacy work and this conversation work that you are, um, that you are pursuing after all of this experience that you've had and like shining a light on, you know, pay practices and advocating for change, not only for symphony orchestras, but also for the music industry in general. So can you talk about a little bit about your advocacy work and what you are doing now to try to promote these conversations further. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's great. So I, there's a number of things that I'm focusing on and some are big picture, you know, like this 
opportunity to speak at Eastman, which was so great. I was so inspired. I was delighted to be there, but I was especially inspired by the all of the presentations by all of the students at Eastman that were powerful and challenging and fascinating. And also by the fact that that whole conference was actually generated by the students like that, that was initiated by the students. And so to me, I, a lot of what I do really is supporting and making space for musicians kind of in your, I don't want to say of your generation, because that makes me sound really old, but, (laughs) but um, to, 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 kind of have conversations, make space for and allow for conversations among early professional musicians to talk about subjects that are difficult to talk about. So whether that is um, issues of both, um, you know, sexism and racism that occur on the job in our own personal experiences about identity, gender identity, um, holding space for conversations around things like you know, even something, well, it's not a small thing, but something which is so often overlooked, like dress codes within orchestras and how they are binary. It's like you pick the boys or you pick the girls. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and also uh, making space for conversations about um, power dynamics within the teacher-student relationships, um, having conversations around traditions. Recently, I've been doing a lot of work trying to nudge our industry to think more carefully around um, the whole tenure process within orchestras and the ways that we've almost turned that into kind of a hazing process. And it's a really um, kind of continuing this whole gatekeeping kind of um, system that we're all very comfortable with and have bought into, but are perpetrating that on each other in a way that's really dysfunctional. And so a lot of what I'm doing right now has to do with again, uh, trying to galvanize and then hold space for conversations about things that aren't talked about in our industry much. So compensation is one, you know, basically, you know, even things just like failure, confidence, imposter syndrome, um, peeling back kind of the facade of perfection on those of us that are quote unquote, highly accomplished or high achievers, trying to break down some of the ways in which this is such a hierarchical industry and this allowing for there to be space for people who are in very esteemed positions to show flaws and actually exist as more multidimensional human beings because we are, and then therefore allowing and permitting, talking about, again, um, providing a model for younger musicians who are going going up to, to see that we're not all perfect. We're not, I mean, fall from it. And that to, to make it more acceptable and more commonplace to, to talk with more nuance and more context and less black and white, less binary, less two-dimensional really about our lives as musicians. So it's hard for me to to kind of properly summarize everything that I'm doing because it it gets very on very much on the personal level. Again, that sort of personal is political piece of it. I do a lot of that kind of work. Um, And then when I have the opportunity to, I am continuing to push for, again, for transparency in our industry around pay. 
around hiring practices. We have a tremendous amount of work to do around systemic racism, bias, all of that that exists within, within the classical music industry. So largely I see my role as starting conversations and starting uncomfortable conversations and then holding space for those conversations to continue and go forth. Yeah, that's, that's excellent because I, there is such a gap that exists, especially for people in my age group. So you're not, you're not dating yourself. You're not aging yourself because I think it needs to be done. There's, I've talked about this before with other guests, especially those that are at the university level that are are particularly mentoring future teachers. Um, That's, that's kind of their, their niche, but it's, it's universal in that in a lot of areas, not just in classical music or in the symphony orchestra, but also in education, young people that do not have a tenured position, it's been common practice that we have no power. We have no say. If something awful happens to us, we can't speak about it. We're not supposed to state our opinion. We're supposed to sit there in silence and not say anything. And that's the common practice and that's the tradition. And that's what we're, we've just been conformed to follow because of just the way that that's how it's been, right? Quote, unquote, I'm using my fingers right now to create quotes, but (laughs) nobody can see that except for you, but that's okay. But it's, it's such an issue. And it's one of the things that I feel extremely passionate about because I am a person that is untenured in my position. Um, and I am a young professional and I don't think that there is space to have those conversations. And, and I'm so glad that you're creating that because I have not felt comfortable to talk about things that have happened to me in my own workplace, in my own job. It's, it's really rough that that's the way our world is. And yes, in like education, uh, my salary is exposed for the world to see. And that is very beneficial because it's you know, I can compare what I'm making to someone else in my district that's also a first-year teacher that whether they identify as male or female or non-binary or whatever, they are still making the same amount as I am. And that's very transparent and easy to see. Um, and that is something that's all awesome New Yorkshire should have. I don't really know why that, that is, but <laughs> that wasn't the case before, but it's a good thing that, that we're fighting that fight now. But yes, that 10-year issue is huge. Um, that imposter syndrome you mentioned as well is huge when you are in a position where you have that lack of representation, like me being a woman identifying high school band director who walked into a job at 21 years old. I'm like a purple unicorn in a field of sheep. (laughs) I'm, you know, I I don't have um, other strong women role models to really look up to because there's not that many people like me. And it's, it's hard. And I, and I fight with imposter syndrome all the time. I'm actually working on a a blog post for my website, for my podcast right now, because people are like, Cassie, we want to hear more about your life. You're always talking to other people. So I'm doing that through this blog. And I'm literally starting the blog with sometimes I feel like I'm a bad teacher. Mm -hmm. And then I start talking about this idea of imposter syndrome, because the image of a high school band director to me has always been an older white male who was very authoritative, who treated band like the military because that was my high school band experience. And so now I'm seeing that and I'm like, I'm not like that at all. And it's hard, there's this conflict, um, especially like a lot of my fellow 
women who are graduate students and doctoral students also feel the same way. They battle this imposter syndrome all the time. It's a huge issue that nobody talks about. And so I'm really glad that you're creating that space for people. And, and even though you're saying, yeah, I'm just starting conversations, it's huge because no one else is doing it. Well, I'm so, first of all, I sometimes wonder if I'm a good teacher too. And I have my days of struggling with imposter syndrome too. And it's something that I think, again, it helps to have those of us. I mean, somebody asked me one time, does that get easier because you have a, such a big position now? And, and, you, and, and I said, no, I think it's gotten worse, actually. <laughs> I got the job and it got worse. Yeah. It got worse. Yeah. Yeah. You're comparing yourself Um, to others even more now. Yeah. And one of the things that I find really helpful for myself and for other people too, is just to ask myself, what is the story that I'm telling about those other people whom I'm comparing myself to? Like, what is the, what, what, what do I actually know? And what are, how much of that is the story that I have created and then what is the story I'm telling myself about myself too? And we do both. We tell ourselves these stories about, oh, I'm a bad this, or this isn't my strength, or, and that's not actually backed up by any kind of empirical data, right? It's just simply our own, it's the way we've become accustomed to thinking about ourselves. And then we tend to look at other people and say, well, they can do this and they can do that. And that comes so easily. And they have this authority and they have this confidence. And we actually, that's the story we're telling also that we are, have constructed in our own minds. So if we can start to step away from all of that and say, huh, what do I actually know about them? And what do I actually know about me? And also just start to think about those things that we sometimes see as our weaknesses or our flaws as to be able to reframe them as something that's a gift. You know, I was speaking with somebody recently who teaches, also a teacher, um, who teaches ear training. And she said to me, I was terrible at ear training, terrible when I was a student, when I was a music student, that was like my weak subject. And here I am teaching it. And I think I'm, I, I, I can't believe that they actually hired me to teach this because I'm terrible at it. And I said, well, I said two things. First of all, all you have to do is be one step ahead of your students. That's it. Like that, that's all that is required. And second of all, the fact that this was hard for you, that it was a struggle for you is a gift to your students because you can relate to them in a new way and you understand the struggle and you have probably had to take all sorts of approaches to help yourself develop this skill. And if this came naturally to you or easily to you, it could very well make you a, a far worse teacher. And so, you know, sometimes we, we, we take this, this information, I was not a strong ear training student and then we craft a story about it, which is that therefore I'm a bad teacher. Therefore I'm an imposter. Therefore they've made a huge mistake hiring me where if we could just stick to the, the fact, okay, I wasn't a strong ear training student and then be curious about that. What, what might that offer or how does that impact actually what the job that I'm doing right now? Does it have any bearing on the job that I'm doing right now? And might it be a positive? So yeah, it's, it, we all fall into those traps. Yeah. And, and for me, everybody always goes uh, up to me and says, Cassidy, you always seem like, you know what you're doing. You're always so confident. And honestly, that makes my imposter syndrome worse because it makes me go, oh, I'm a fraud. Like if I'm coming across, like I know what I'm doing and I, and I honestly like don't in certain situations, but I, I try my best. 
it makes it almost worse in that way. They're like trying to boost me. And at the same time, I'm internally going, ah, <laughs> but the, the, uh, the, the oral skills thing resonated with me so much because my current TA position at Eastman right now is tutoring music education students for a skills exam where it's a lot of oral skills stuff. It's sighting. It's all these things that I was awful at in my undergrad. Bad. I had a professor that kicked me in the butt so many times and just try to get through because I was not a kid that was very good at oral skills at all. That was not my thing. Sight singing, forget about it. I would get so much anxiety singing in front of people because I was a band kid through and through. I never sang. And then I got to college and I was like, oh crap, I got to sing. That is so true in that I was sitting there and I had that imposter syndrome at the beginning of the semester, like, oh crap, I'm I'm bad at this and I'm going to have to tutor kids and how to do it. But then I realized that, well, obviously now my skills are better because I made it through all of that. But not only that, but I have developed strategies and ways that is not the, you know, stereotypical way of doing things, but what has worked for me. And I have to puzzle piece things together sometimes. And I'm helping students figure that out. And all of a sudden I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm good at this because I struggled the same way that they did, like you were saying. And same thing with my high school band and my middle school band. I was a terrible sight reader as a kid. Awful. So I had to develop way wonky strategies to figure out how to sight read a piece. Then now when I you know, I, I, I teach the kids the stereotypical way, but if they're still struggling, I could say, hey, you know what? I had the same problem when I was your age and I did it this way and this worked for me and then it works for them. And I'm like, oh, I did a thing. It's amazing. So yeah, like sometimes the things that we struggle with, we are more helpful to kids because we've been there. And, and even when some of my best teachers were the people that struggled on their instrument and had to work the hardest, they were not the most naturally gifted people they just worked their butts off and they figured it out and so those were the people that were able to help me the most because when I was struggling with something they could be like hey you know what I had the same issue here's how I fixed it and that's so much more worthwhile than the person that was like yeah I mean I could just like pick up my trumpet and play the Tomasi concerto yeah whatever like that's not hard fine cool and I'm sitting there like I'm struggling (laughs) that's so true so true I think there are two really beautiful things in that one is the added dimension to your teaching that you get from having, as you described, struggled with this. But then there's also that point of empathy too, that connection with your student. And that is so valuable to the student to be able to see somebody that they look up to, that they admire, who is farther along in their career, who has more knowledge. And for the teacher to be willing to say, yeah, I was bad at that too. Mm -hmm. And, And to show the student that that because they're struggling with something now doesn't mean anything about what their future holds for them. It just means that they have a challenge right now that they're facing in this one area. And to be able to offer that to a student is really, it's really powerful. I sometimes tell younger teachers who come to me concerned that they're not advanced enough to be teaching um, that they say, well, I I don't feel like I'm ready to be a teacher yet because I just like I still have a teacher or I'm still learning. And, and I said, well, gosh, I, I'm still learning too. So, or I hope yeah. I am. So, but one of the really beautiful images that I'd like to use too, is that for a teacher who's earlier in their career, you know, you've just walked down that path and you remember where like the big boulders are and the big holes are and the pitfalls are. And so you can 
turn back over your shoulder and warn those students about all of those like rocks in the path. Cause yep. you were just there. But if you <laughs> yep. traveled down that path, you know, 30 years ago, it's like, were there, were there hard things on that path? I don't really remember anymore. Or where's that cliff that you might fall off. And so the earlier, the teachers who are earlier in their careers have that fresh memory of, of what it was like to struggle and to overcome those obstacles. So not only do they have the skills to teach and that point of empathy, but they also, there's also this freshness in it, in your own, in your own mind so that you can really guide your students with a lot of clarity. Yeah. And I think the, the advantage also to that and being of that age group is that you're easily more relatable to kids right away because they see you and they're like, that's a young person. They're not that much older than me. I mean, I walked into my first job at 21. Some of my students had siblings that were older than me <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah. So I know what TikTok is. <laughs> I know what that is. And just things like that. They're like, oh yeah, Miss Reed must be so cool. She knows what I'm talking about, but it's not just that. It's that I, it wasn't that long ago when I had to work through the same issues, like, like you were saying. And like, I, I remember my high school band director telling me I was rhythmically challenged and me feeling so awful about myself and things like that. And I, and I tell my kids that, and I say, look at where I am now. Like if, if like I could do it, you could do it. Right. And I went to school for music and I am now a professional musician. So don't doubt yourself just because you're struggling with a specific skill, right? It's a skill. Doesn't mean you can't play your instrument. So in that way, it also creates more of a relatable and, and meaningful relationship. But I, I feel like any teacher can create that if they're willing to make themselves vulnerable to their students. I think, I think there's this weird sort of culture in classical music where, you know, the teacher is above the student and it creates this wall in the sense that you come to your lesson you are supposed to behave as professional as possible. And we're just here to talk about the music and nothing else. And it, it doesn't create that sense of vulnerability. You don't see your teacher as being a human that makes mistakes, that has struggled before, that you know has a family and has a life and they, and they leave the studio and they go home and they like play with their dog or hang out with their kids or things like that. And just to have a vulnerable conversation, even if it's not about music, creates that relatability and, that, and that's what solidifies that relationship. So if we can break down that wall and just have conversations with our students, like, hey, how was your weekend? like talking about a movie even like something like that just creating that sense of relatability and breaking down those barriers and whether it's about music or not being vulnerable with the people that you are working with because that is a priceless relationship especially at the collegiate level especially at the undergraduate level you are with that person usually for four years potentially more that is a lifelong relationship it has the potential to be so we need to break down those barriers and be more vulnerable with each other and be like, yeah, you know what? I'm a human too. I make mistakes. Did you hear my recital last weekend? Did you hear like, you know, I struggled with this piece just like you did or something like that, you know, just having those conversations. I agree. And I think that, you know, we are all multidimensional complex creatures and it's not good for any of us to be turned into a caricature, even if that's a caricature that's sort of a a perfect, like a Disney caricature of like perfection or something that, that is, is it's, it's, it's not good to be reduced to kind of a 
uh, an overly simplified version of, or like an avatar, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also this tendency that we all have to tell these stories about other people and about ourselves, the more that we have a richer and more compo- complex understanding of each other as human beings, the less prone we are to fall into these kind of overly simplistic narratives about I'm terrible at this, they're amazing at that, I am a failure, they are a success, like all of these very binary kind of polarized ways that we often, many of us tend to look at the world. When we can start to see ourselves and each other with more dimension and more complexity and more richness than those, it's harder to fall into the trap of those stories that we can sometimes that trick us into this place of imposter syndrome or um, lack of confidence. And something that this pandemic time, this transformative time, this awful time, but like transformative in a way that the world has changed so quickly. For me, not being able to teach in the capacity that I usually do and in, in the hours of the week that I usually do, it has been a slow realization of mine that I am not my job. And I think that was just, it was a mind blowing experience for me because I am a person that's, you know, very much a perfectionist, very much is like, I can't relax. I'm always going on to the next project. I'm always doing the next thing. Like even before we were recording, we were talking about like free time. I was like, what free time? But an interesting time in the sense that because I'm not, you know, in the normal teaching setting that I'm in, I've come to the realization that like, I'm a person too. I'm not just my job. I think we become so attached, especially in music to our our job. And that becomes our identity. And and yes, it's a part of you, but it's not you. You have other aspects of your life that are just as important as your job. And I think that we also have created this culture, especially in, the collegiate world and when you're going to music school and you're around music all the time that your your strive to get the job becomes your identity so then when you get the job you're like this is me this is all I am my job there's nothing else to me and it and you think that it's you but there's more than that there well and that's that could not be more true and what also unfortunately happens when we set ourselves up that way and I want to say that it's understandable that we get into that position because we do have to dedicate, you know, hundreds upon thousands of hours to our craft. And, you know, you don't get to be at the top of the field without, you know, putting in the hours on the practice room and all that. There is some reality to that. And starting what we do at such a young age and committing to it early on, much earlier than most people commit to a career, there is this kind of necessary focus that we do bring And yet we are also not often encouraged to supplement that with a really rich rest of our lives and rest of our identity. And so even when you do, or if you do kind of land the big job or get the goal, whatever the goal is, Mm -hmm. what so often ends up happening is, is that people worked so hard and sacrificed so much to get there that then the expectation is that that job is actually going to fill them up. It's going to give them what they need. Yeah. It's going to make them happy. And then comes the, the reality that in many, many cases it doesn't. And when that is, if, if you find yourself in that situation where the big job or the goal or the accomplishment, whatever it is that you've been striving for, where, where you get there and then suddenly you realize it's not 
giving you everything you need and you haven't spent enough time cultivating other interests, other, you know, relationships, the rest of yourself and the rest of your identity, then that can be an enormous crushing blow. And then there can be a lot of work that's required to start to feed those other, like fill up those other buckets in your life and, and even just discover what they are. So if you've sorted this out and figured this out for yourself already, if this pandemic year has allowed you to make that discovery for yourself, I think that puts you in a really beautiful position going forward. The other truth is, is that if we keep all of those aspects of our life as healthy and fed as we can, inevitably we're going to feel pressure in some area at any point in our life. If it's going to be personal, professional health, you know, there's all sorts of ways, financial, there's all sorts of ways that things get hard. But if we've been taking care of all of those aspects of, of ourselves, then no, we're not so dependent on any one area of our life to create our identity or our happiness. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Do you want to pivot a little bit because we were talking about how you're you are creating these communities for young professionals. That's what sparked our whole conversation and me going on my soapbox because I, I got to go on my soapbox at least once an episode. It's fine. <laughs> uh, you had briefly mentioned the Facebook group that you had created. Um, it is called Seeing Beyond the Notes and it is serving classical musicians in the early stages of their um, career. So can you talk a little bit about this Facebook group and what this sort of community is about and who's involved. Yes. Well, this came about in the spring. Uh, We're kind of coming up on a year. I guess I I founded it in April, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, kind of thinking about ways that I wanted to have an impact um, that I just simply hadn't had time to do up until then. And I've was facing some free time. Um, and so I, I, I really had felt the desire to cultivate a space, to, to create a space where musicians at this particular stage in life could have a, a, a chance to connect and relate. Because I, I feel like the early, you know, something like early 20s to early 30s is the time for all of us, but especially in the music career, I think where our identities, our relationships, our career, all of that are really starting to form and get, we're starting to get clarity on all of that. And then often, or sometimes they come into conflict, you know, you're in this situation where you might have a job that needs you to move to Nebraska and you might have a partner that needs to stay in New York. And then how does that work? Or it might be that you come to the realization that you have just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and a million years of school pursuing something that is actually not making you happy and, mm-hmm. or you desperately want something in the, you're just biding your time until an opportunity comes open for you. And you know, there's, it's just a time of a lot of transition, a lot of richness, a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of struggle. So I, and I had observed through some of the work that I do when I'm in the summertime, the Boston Symphony relocates out to Western Massachusetts to Tanglewood and there's a summer music festival there and working with some of the musicians there, I had some really, really rewarding and profound conversations with musicians who were essentially facing some of these challenges. And I I had this strong sense that there was a need to to create a space for that. So I didn't know the first thing about social media. I didn't, I wasn't on Facebook. I wasn't, I had no clue and no skills, Um, but I had an idea of what I wanted to create. So 
fast forward and I think there's about 500 people in there. It's intentionally a small group. I don't allow in kind of high powered teachers or because I again want this to be a space where people can share. And we've had a couple of Facebook live events where I've brought in, I brought in um, someone to talk about imposter syndrome, a, a mental health expert to talk with the group about imposter syndrome. I brought in somebody else to talk about mental health. I brought somebody else in who had made a career change away from the classical music, who stepped away from a big orchestra job, just to start again, normalizing these conversations yeah. and, you know, making them happen. And um, I post in the group a couple times a week, some practical stuff, some, a lot of what I like to do is just put some provocative posts about ideas about how we define success or how we Love overcome it. failure, how we handle feedback and just to generate thought. And so essentially the way the group works is, you know, people comment here and there, we show up for various things. It's, it's just, it, it's, it has to the best that I can tell because it is social media and it exists in the void. Um, but to the best that I can tell, it has evolved into a space where people feel as though they have a community of folks who are in, a, again, it's that it's, it's tapping into that concept of empathy, where if there's just even the tiniest bit of overlap in a story and you can hear about it, understand it and relate to it, it just feels like there's some community there. So, um, yeah, so it's just a kind of a place for, for some conversation and it's a special, special place. I love it. Any, any of those, I think, you know, social media has obviously some negative sort of <laughs> results, right? I, I feel like people are constantly comparing themselves to each other and things like that. And we're always like showing like my ideal world, like my best look, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, my life is going great. Look at my Instagram or whatever. Um, but I also think the positive of that is that we are able to create these communities with people that would not necessarily even know of each other. Um, as much as the music world is small, it is large too. And we all are coming from diverse experiences and different locations and different professions because there's so many within the music industry that creating those groups just for people to have authentic conversations is so important. Um, especially when, you know, we were talking about earlier how, you know, there hasn't been that comfortability to have these conversations. There hasn't been that space. Um, and so I think that's so great that you that you did that and you're creating that space, especially for young people to have those conversations because it's it's hard to find that even, even in a group to be honest and to be authentic in your experience and to feel like people are A, gonna take you seriously and understand and B, not share it you know, the world, because it's so easy to do that and be like, oh, yeah, Cassidy Reed said that this happened to her and spread that around like wildfire. There is that fear um, when it isn't a community that you feel comfortable in as well. So there, there is that sort of disparity of, uh, I don't know if I should share this, um, even though it is something that happened to you. So I, I think that's great that there is that, you know, authentic community there um, helping others for sure. The last question I actually have for you, is there any piece of advice or even just a quote or something that a mentor or you have come across in your life that has had a, a profound impact on either how you view yourself or your career or success? You're talking about the definition of success to you and things like that. Is there something that you kind of just carry with you 
um, that either someone has said to you or you have found? You know, it's funny when you were saying that what popped into my mind, and that is just today at this particular time, um, is that I think we think a lot about wishing for confidence, wanting to have confidence. And for me, I think the pursuit is not confidence, it's courage. That courage is something that we can do. Confidence is something we sort of wait around to feel. And I think that we have courage, we do courage, we, we act courage first, and confidence is something that maybe comes, maybe doesn't, but we can all choose to be courageous. We can't really choose confidence, but we can choose our, our steps, we can choose to take action, we can choose courage. And I think that, to me, that has been very helpful to me in challenging moments in my life, where I'm not confident. And I think if I waited to become confident, I would still be waiting. And I was able to, and, and again, to define courage doesn't mean earth shattering, giant, anything. Courage could be getting out of bed <laughs> or inviting somebody onto a podcast or <laughs> speaking your truth or admitting a mistake. Like all of those are acts of courage. And those are again, we say acts of courage. And so it's the, it's those steps that we take, the things that we do that then allow us to grow our identity, to become who we are. And if confidence comes with that, wonderful. And if not, that's okay too. I love that. Choosing courage. I love it. Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences and having this amazing conversation. I think a lot of people will, will find solace in what we've talked about and, and we'll also find some resources that will help them and just more information about these conversations that need to be had. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for this um, extraordinary podcast series that you have created and all the work that you're doing. It's, it's you. absolutely wonderful.